is Nature Business, and I'm your host, Chrissy Coughlin. Thank you for sticking around with us here on this beautiful Thursday afternoon. We have with us now Eric Lowett, and I'm very excited to be talking to him about his work. He is completely committed to sustainability and is the author of The Future of Value, as well as a uh, renowned speaker and business consultant. And uh, he also has a book... Um, coming out in, I think, a couple months. So we're going to talk to him about his new book. He is named as one of the top 100 thought leaders on trustworthy business behavior for 2012. His work is regularly featured in the Harvard Business Review, The Guardian, Christian Science Monitor, and Wall Street Journal. And we will have him give us the rest of the story. Welcome, Eric. Thank you, Chrissy, for having me. Well, you're welcome. I'm uh, I'm excited. We, like I mentioned on the first section of the uh, show, I said... Every time you and I talk and get into these conversations, we look at our phones or what our watches or whatever, and we're like, "Wow, it's been an hour." So, <laughs> I said, I, I was saying that to, on the you know, live, I said, "Well, we gotta, we're gonna have to hone it down a little here. There's so much to talk about." <laughs> well, I think that's, I think that's definitely the case. We're, we're both clearly very passionate about this topic yeah. and, and lots to give, but. Uh, well, let's, we'll, we'll keep it guided, and uh, and we'll provide our audience with some great value. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And 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 I you know I did I left out the part on your bio that you, you're fluent in Japanese, but that doesn't really matter because I don't speak Japanese, so we're gonna have to speak. <laughs> to I think there's some, there some Japanese friends of mine who would say the same about me, but that must <laughs> be because of my accent. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's funny. Um, well, let's start. Let's start with a little bit about you. Um, I obviously I gave a, a, a cursory introduction there, but it'd be great for everybody to hear who Eric Lowe is and, and what you're doing. Sure, I, I appreciate that. So I am a uh, best way to describe me as a sustainability uh, thought leader. I'm somebody who spends the bulk of my time working and talking with companies, primarily CEOs, chief sustainability officers, board directors of companies here in the states as well as abroad to try to solve what seems to be an insolvable problem, which is how do we address many of the world's greatest challenges, whether they're challenges in the form of climate change, food, water, energy system insecurity, in a way that uh, not only address these, these systemic problems, but also kickstart inclusive growth for companies, as well as global growth uh, just on a, on a global scale. So. I spend the bulk of my time, whether it's reading, writing, advising, consulting, speaking with companies on this type of a topic, and more and more, I'm spending time now with NGOs uh, as well as uh, senior staff in the White House, senior staff from the EU Parliament, staff from Congress as well, to be starting to think through what is the sustainable development uh, platform and agenda for the next four, six, eight years look like. Hmm. Well, that's going to be definitely a, a topic here that we're going to talk about. Um, why don't we? Why don't we just delve into it? What are we looking at the next four or six years? You know, let's let's uh, let's dive in a little bit more and, and look specifically at the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I I'm not an when it comes to looking at uh, positive regulation for the Beltway as it relates to sustainable development. So I don't believe in the next four years. We're going to see a carbon tax, for example. Um, mm. I'm not sure that we're going to see any sort of significant water regulation. Um, I'm hoping, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that we'll finally see a plan from the DOE, from the Department of Energy, that uh, shows us a roadmap for the next 30 to 50 years that we're going to, from a public and private sector, 
perspective, commit to that tapers hydrocarbon fuels, coal, uh, coal natural gas, uh, oil, uh, down from about 60% of U.S. energy power generation today to something that's maybe 20% in 15 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I can't foresee a scenario where you know we're going to not have hydrocarbon in the next decade or, or two unless and until the beltway gets behind it. Right. So I'm right. pessimistic on carbon reg, I'm pessimistic on water reg, I'm cautiously optimistic on having an energy map that, that comes out that suggests this is how we're going to taper down on hydrocarbon uh, over the next two, three decades, and at the same time, this is going to invest in refining and perfecting renewable energy uh, technologies, as well as upgrading our antiquated electric grid mm-hmm. to handle those types of renewable energy sources. Um, the area that I think that there may be some action in is the area of antitrust. Mm. And folks usually say, well, antitrust, what does that have anything to do with sustainability? I don't right, get it. Right. right. And the answer is, you know, put yourself in the shoes of a big, giant global beverage manufacturer that has another big, giant global beverage manufacturer as a competitor. If you're both headquartered in the U.S. and you're both using the same suppliers, for sugarcane or for uh, plastic bottles, you can't right now, uh, as procurement functions, work together to actually get the common the supplier in common to reduce their uh, usage of virgin plastic, for example, because that would be out of compliance with antitrust. And so there is this quiet but slowly emerging voice in the Beltway that's saying, look. You know, when we built antitrust, uh, the Sherman Act antitrust, uh, anti-monopoly regulation 120 years ago, we built it to protect the consumer, mm-hmm. but we're rapidly approaching a point in time where what's in the best interest of the consumer may not represent what's in the best interest of the citizen. Mm-hmm. And then the question becomes, well, which one takes precedent? Right. And I think that over the next three, four years, we may see some movement in that area. Okay. So... For people who are listening to us right now and they're, they're, they sort of understand sustainable development, um, how how do we how do we communicate this? Are, are we are we first of all? I mean, do you feel like we're winning? Do we feel do you feel like we're losing this 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 race? You know that we're that that's taking place around sustainable development, whether it be climate change, water, food. I mean, obviously you're pessimistic about some aspects and optimistic about others, but. What, what, the, what about the bigger picture here, just, just explaining it to a layperson? Yeah. You know, it's, it's a great question, and it's one that uh, I'm, I'm a father. I'm a parent of two kids, uh, eight and six, and we talk about this all the time um, because they come home and from school, and they're all excited to talk about uh, that their schools created a reduce, reuse, recycle-type program. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's terrific, and I think many more of those actions at the local level are fantastic. But bigger picture, you know, if we just look at, you and I are both Northeastern-based, if you just look at the weather that we've had to deal with over the last six, eight months, mm-hmm. right, Sandy, Nemo, a variety of Nor'easters, massive swings in temperatures. Yesterday it was 51 degrees, today it's going to be 30, tomorrow it's going to be 30. You know, just, mm-hmm. just weather events in the last six months alone suggest to me that there's something more than coincidence that is behind this this volatile weather patterns that we're seeing. Mm. And in fact, when you take a look at the data, the data suggests that 12 of the hottest years on record have happened within our last 15 years. Mm. 
So if you combine that stat with just what your eyes are telling you, you know, and your experience is telling you from Sandy, from Nemo, from many of these other storms, I can't escape the sense that climate change is advancing faster than our ability to uh, push back the, uh, the erosive effects of climate change. Mm-hmm. And if you start to look at that, you say, well, okay, I buy that. What are some of the other impacts? Well, we had this massive, you know, once every 60 year, supposedly once every 60 year drought in the middle of the country. 60% of our neighbors in the U.S. suffered from this massive drought last year, and they're still suffering the effects of that drought. And so it's not just climate change results in more water. Climate change results in an uneven distribution of water, Mm -hmm. which then calls into question things like, well, while the Northeast is getting a tremendous soaking of water, how do we help farmers in the Midwest become resilient as the advance of climate change continues to rear its ugly head? Right, right. So I'm not sure that we're necessarily big picture winning the battle right now. So I'm pessimistic there. I'm optimistic that there is a solution that's within our reach, that's not radical in nature, that can help us not only mitigate the risk of climate change, but ultimately put us back on the track of uh, a healthy, safe, sustainable environment uh, that is created in a way that also helps drive economic development. Right, right. It, it, is, it is amazing when you think about um, how we're getting deluged, you know, in the, in the Northeast and, and the Midwest is not at all, and there, there's no way to transport the water we're getting to them you know it seems sort of there's simple it seems to me that instead of thinking about keystone pipelines we should be thinking about other storm forms of pipeline (laughs) but that's just one of one of i've had somebody on the show actually way back when was talking about this and i think there are some some solutions that we just don't really think about and, you know, it's, not, it's a problem. The good news, if you want to see it perversely this way, is that we're not the only country that's suffering from these types of challenges. Right. right. You look at India last summer. Mm. 600 million people at, the, at the, the peak of the heat of the summer, of the local summer, were sitting for two weeks in their homes without any semblance of electricity. Right. And the reason why was because there was a, a large patch of farms in northwest India that hit drought-like conditions, and they needed to move water and move hydropower-based water and, and move other types of uh, irrigation technology into that part of the country, but it overtaxed other regional portions of the electric, gi- electric grid, resulting in what's the, uh, roughly the equivalent of 10% of our world's population sitting for two weeks at the heat of the summer without electricity. That's amazing. So perversely, we're not the only country that's suffering from this, and that therein lies sort of the light at the end of the tunnel, which is if these types of problems we're talking about, climate change, water, we can talk energy, we can talk food, you know, healthcare, if these types of problems affect all of us in common, then all of us in common must now work together to come up with the right plans, create the right financing solutions, and put our fingers to the bone to beat back the uh, um, up until this point unabated advance of some of these massive challenges we're discussing. Right, but isn't it just isn't that so so inherently challenging when you have countries like India 
when you compare them to the United States and then you say Europe and Africa, everybody has obviously a different, um, you know, D GDP. They have different governments, priorities. So it's it's difficult to get people into a room and 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 talk about it on a level playing field. Yes, and it's you know it's your your points, Chris. You're exactly right. This is a really difficult situation. You know, and we've tried for many years through the UN, right? We just saw yeah. COP18 not too long ago in the Mideast, uh, before that Rio Plus 20 in Brazil last June, where the UN, rightly so, is convening, you know, multilateral, multi-nation type mm -hmm. meetings to say, okay, let's just agree on a level of carbon emissions right. on a region-by-region region basis. <laughs> uh, you know, now, let's, now, what, now what we're trying to do is trying to say, yeah, that's good, but what would be even better would be if we would take a systems thinking approach to say, how do we get all the countries together, not just to work on carbon, but to work on water and energy and food because they're so insidiously intertwined. Mm -hmm. And to make it even further complicated, you know, the governments around the world, with the exception of a few, are facing austerity programs. Right. Right? We here in the U.S. are facing sequestration is but one example. Right. And so looking to the government to provide a financial, let alone regulatory, panacea <laughs> to the challenges we face, I think, is, is setting us up for failure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I think there are many in the private sector who truly feel like, whether voluntarily or involuntarily, in order to ensure their operations can continue you know, uh, in the foreseeable future, they're taking on a never larger financial burden to address issues of water infrastructure or, you know, food, uh, farmer living standards, whether it's in the Mideast, uh, middle of the country, rather, or it's sub-Saharan Africa. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, the free market is saying, hey, wait a second. You're so focused on trying to get these country-by-country -country agreements, and mm -hmm. yet your budget to affect great change is shrinking. This great change has to happen because if I'm a company that relies heavily on water, I've come to realize that no matter how good I am at marketing, without water, I don't have product, and without product, I don't have a business. Mm -hmm. I need to be investing in water regardless of what the government is doing. You know, do we not face a time where you know, businesses are starting to say, you know, almost no, no taxation without representation? Right, exactly. We need, to be at the, we need to be at the seat of the stable, too. So that's what overcomplicates these types of multilateral, multi you know, multi-sovereign nation type mm -hmm. negotiations, but they have to happen. They have to. So, I still, I still come back to this sort of uh, feeling of, you know, when you and I talk about it, for instance, we go back and forth and realize this is a serious, serious issue, and it make, you know, it gives me anxiety. I'm like, we have to do something now, and you know, just in a, in a, I'm being somewhat comical about it, but when the, the, the. The reality is that most people go throughout their days and they are experiencing a 30 degree degree day in the Northeast now and they're saying, see, you know, there's no problem, the global warming, whatever, you know, it's 30 degrees out, this is, season. This is how it is out for a year and the sun is shining and I can breathe the air and I'm not dying imminently, so what's, what's the big problem? How, how do we communicate this to people in a way that is really going to resonate it's a, it's a great question, and I've got two. I, if, if you and I could figure out the answer to that, yeah. we would never have to buy another lottery ticket again. <laughs> right, right. Right? Sure. But, um, but I, see, I see two hints at a solution to that question, because that's a fantastic question. It, it, it's you know, something that's vexed many of us. Um, but there are two solutions to it. 
are two pieces to the solution that are already out there. One is, do you remember, and I think we've talked about this before, but do you remember in the 70s there were those series of public service announcements made by uh, an organization called Keep America Beautiful, mm -hmm. which highlighted a Native American who would look out at landfills and look at cars as they would throw, you know, wrappers from fast food restaurants out of out of their car windows, and then the end of the commercial, the Native American turns his head to the camera, and you can see a tear going down his eye as he overlooks all this litter on the road. Mm -hmm. Right, and I say, well, that happened almost 35 years ago, and yet it left such a it left such a visceral oh so visceral it left such a you know resounding impact. That when was the last time you drove on the highway? And saw you know somebody take a wrapper from one of our really big you know restaurant fast food restaurants, roll the window down, just take the whole bag and throw it out on the highway. Mm -hmm. It's been a long time. It happens with things like cigarette butts, and it's a pet peeve of all of ours. Um, but it's been so long since that's happened. And you say, well, why? And the reason why I think in large part is because this PSA was so effective at making something that. A tiny bit of litter in Kansas, does that really impact my life in Massachusetts? Right, right. Probably not. Right. You know, but yet it was so visceral and so regionally agnostic because it was able to show, hey, look, you litter our planet. You're making our planet worse for all of us. As a result, you've seen a great reduction in littering. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a piece there. And I think the other piece, too, and we're seeing it right now, the whole point of sequestration that we're facing in the, in the U.S. government right now the whole point of it is because we've got these massive, you know, budget deficits, and we continue to bump up against our ability to uh, uh, borrow more money. You and I, as just normal citizens, on a day-to-day -day basis, does it really matter to us whether uh, whether we end up investing? You know, does it really matter to us whether? Um, is, uh, whether the U.S. government is able to buy a bond at one one and a half percent or or one and three quarters percent, you know, because our ability to handle debt loads has hit some sort of magic number, it really doesn't. Mm -hmm. It's so big and it's so distant to you and I as individuals, and yet we're feeling the pressure anyway because the uh, the U.S. government is going through sequestration. So I look at those two issues. I look at PSAs and the Native American with littering in the 70s, and I look at how we're going through sequestration right now, and I say, well, both of these are also long-term problems, both of which, in some way, the impact on individuals wasn't very clear, and yet both, in some way, resulted in individuals raising arms to say, hey, wait a second, we have to make change. Mm -hmm. So that tells me that at least there's historical precedent to do what we need to do. We just need to continue to study these types of ways to better understand how do we affect great change at the individual level. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So this this sort of begs the question of how how do we how do we expedite this process? How do we how do we how do we speed it up so that that we do win this race against time? And it's such a great question because we are in a race against time. Because whether we feel it and whether we believe it and whether we know it, every day that goes by without massive change. At, uh, affected at a rapid pace, we lose the race against the erosive change caused by climate change. Mm. So there is absolutely a race happening right in front of us right now, even if we don't feel it every day. Mm -hmm. And I think the answer is basically in the following, is that we have to first accept the fact that the interests of the commons are now in the common interest. 
And that could sound like hyperbole and semantics, but in reality what it means is that for the first time ever, the interests of the public sector, the government, mm -hmm. the interests of the civil sector, NGOs and local communities, and citizens just like you and me, and the interests, and the interests of, um, and the interests of you know, the private sector are all aligned. You know, companies like Coca-Cola have come to realize, you know what, without water, there is no business. Mm -hmm. Pepsi feels the same way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, local communities feel the same way. And the public sector feels the same way. So right there, we have an interest in common to bring together what I like to call uh, the beginnings of the collaboration economy, mm -hmm. which is the subject of my forthcoming book. It comes out next month, mm -hmm. um, which is the only way we're going to address these global, massive-scale challenges that we've been discussing, whether it's climate change, food, water, energy, materials, or any one of a thousand other challenges, is by getting cross-sector collaboration. That means collaboration with entities from the private sector, the public sector, and the civil sector to address specific issues at scale, You know, in other words, in a really big, heavy, billion-dollar investment way, mm -hmm. in a way that we can also move very quickly. And until and unless we get there, um, I remain very pessimistic about our ability to beat back some of the massive challenges uh, staring at us right now. Mm -hmm. Well, let's hear a little bit more about your upcoming book. I, I, I was mentioning that it was coming out. I think I may have even said May, but it's coming out in April. It is, in mm -hmm. fact. In fact, at the risk of selling it per se, um, it's on. You can get it now on Amazon. Oh, okay. uh, it won't, won't ship for a couple of weeks, but uh, it's called the Collaboration Economy, and the idea behind this book is to say, is to essentially take the conversation we've been having and, and forward it and say, great, it's one thing to call for cross-sector collaboration, public-private civil sector collaboration. It's another thing to, A, explain what does that even mean in layman's terms? Right, what does that right. look like? What does it mean? You know, in English, what, what it means is that can you find a scenario where Coca-Cola focused on water, you know, decides to work really closely with an NGO like WWF as well as a private, as well as a public sector ent entity, uh, let's say like the Chinese government, to protect you know watershed and, and water areas along the Yangtze River in China, mm -hmm. and the answer is yes. And you look at something like that and you say, well, why do I in New Hampshire and in you know Massachusetts, why do I care about what happens at the Yangtze River mm -hmm. in China? And the answer is, while we don't, while we're not directly impacted by what happens in the Yangtze River per se. We are impacted by the precedent that's set by getting a private sector, huge global company that is civic-minded uh, mm -hmm. to work together with an NGO that's global in nature, together with one of the world's largest, you know, public sector entities. Right, right. They say, well, great. If that happens there, why can't that happen here? And that's the the ethos of that's the core of the collaboration economy book is to say, well. Cross-sector collaboration, I believe, can provide us the answers to speed up our ability to outrace the erosive uh, effects of, of the change we've been talking about. The way to do it is by getting public-private civil sectors to work together. Mm -hmm. The free market, uh, my take is that the free market actually has to play the critical role of leader, convener, and orchestrator of these collaborative efforts. It's really difficult for NGOs to pull together the world's largest companies and the world's most uh, influential policymakers. It's really difficult for policymakers to do it. It's easier right now for companies because companies, again, are realizing that, you know what, without water or without materials, we're the first to shut down. We're the first line of defense. 
and since we're being asked by other entities to uh, to shoulder the greatest burden from a financial perspective, we have to be the leaders. Right. So the book talks through how do you do that? How do you become a um, a collaboration economy leader? How do you collaborate your way to competitive advantage? Uh, and how do you do so in a way that solves our water, food, energy, and materials, uh, and a whole bunch of other global system challenges in the process? Okay, that's great. That's that's that sounds great. Um, do you give you meant you know you've mentioned Pepsi and Coke and and that obviously is a, a dire situation. If you know we run out of water, you can't make Pepsi or Coke. So it's a, what do you have any other examples in your um, either through your firm or in your new book um, of companies who are really getting it? Yes, yes. You know we we're all so uh, so fluent with Unilever, and we all look to Paul Pullman mm-hmm. as another CEO who just seems to get it. And 18 months ago, he went in front of the financial investment community, and he said, look, we're going to continue to have quarterly earnings calls, and we're going to continue to report earnings quarterly, but we're no longer going to provide forward-looking quarter, quarterly earnings guidance. Mm-hmm. And what that effectively did is gave Unilever the cover to focus on long-term investments as opposed to having to focus exclusively on making short-term investments. Okay. Right? Well, what does that mean for all of us? Mm-hmm. What it means for all of us is for the first time ever, a company set a goal, a, a corporate strategy, a big mission, a big picture goal that it was not, that is not, that it alone is not able to, uh, to achieve. For Unilever, they came out with a goal where they said, look, we're going to be double in size and half our, uh, and half our carbon, uh, half our environmental footprint at the same time. Right. That's like saying, theoretically, you and I can go to the local ice cream shop, eat twice our weight in chocolate ice cream. And somehow lose half our body mass in the process. I would love right? that. Wouldn't that be great? It would be great. But, but the math doesn't work. Right. And so the only way to make the math work is for Unilever to work closely with partners, mm-hmm. including farmers at the local smallholder, that means farmers with very small farming plots level, to change things like um, you know, how farmers use water, mm-hmm. the type of the technology farmers use to manage yield, crop, uh, crop yields, um, you know, the type of fertilizer they use to, in essence, help farmers raise their own standards of living because, in turn, by doing so, Unilever's uh, supply chain level sustainability impacts are lessened, Mm -hmm. and if done correctly without the use of GMOs, Unilever's ability to provide more food to a population forecast to go from 7 billion to 9.5 in the next 30 years greatly increases as well. And so I look at Unilever and I say, well, company that gets that corporations can no longer control but now only influence their own destinies. And the best way to do it is by working in concert with suppliers and vendors, in this case, uh, small older farmers. They're working very closely with NGOs and they're working very closely with public sector entities as well to look at everything uh, everything that can, in fact, impact a farmer's standard of living. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow. We can, t- we can talk a lot so many so many um aspects of this we could talk about but let's 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 we've got about you know seven or eight minutes or so let let's i want to hear about your company and what you're doing at nexus global advisors and and maybe some examples of some cool projects that you're working on right now sure i I'm delighted to share so i i'm a consultant by background i'm a management consultant i spent mm-hmm. About 15 years with Accenture and a little time with Deloitte, uh, a good amount of time as well with Fidelity Investments. 
And so I come to sustainability not with the traditional environmentalist uh, background, but rather from a, a practical business management strategist background. And so as I was looking at the field of uh, sustainable development from a private sector and, and public sector service offerings perspective, you know, I noticed that there seemed to be this need for an advisory firm that doesn't charge consulting firm prices, but charges much less, that could come in and work with a company at any level of their sustainability maturity, that is companies that are first grasping sustainability to companies like Coca-Cola and Unilever that are clearly leading the way, and work with those companies to, to better understand what's next for us, what's that next level, and how do we push through it, and what are the best practices that are already out there that will help us get to that next level of sustainability maturity that much more quickly. Mm -hmm. And in the process, there was also this need for a company that could work closely with NGOs to help NGOs uh, translate their good works into business, uh, business terms and business methodologies that would be more relevant to CEOs. So essentially, Nexus Global Advisors is a bridge that bridges uh, the gap between companies and NGOs to help foster sustainable development at a pace that's much faster and at a scale that's much larger than it's happening right now. Okay, and and are you are you finding that that are you finding that your work is well received? I know. I mean, I I do some similar similar consulting, and sometimes there's that level of convincing that needs to take place with with clients um, that that trust me, sort of trust me on this. Are are you finding that you are um, collaborating effectively with your with your clients or having to spend a lot of time explaining? Yep, you know, it's a great question. Some clients come to me with the, hey, you know, I saw your Future of Value book or I've seen an HBO article XYZ from you or, yeah. you know, a friend of mine suggested, you know, listening to you because you gave a talk somewhere in Helsinki recently. Mm. Um, and for those types of companies that are first trying to figure out what sustainability is, I think they're looking to me as somebody who can speak to them in P&L and business management terms. Mm -hmm. And so my, my view is that sustainability is not altruism. Sustainability is not feel, you know, feel goodness. Mm -hmm. Sustainability is making some very tough decisions about everything from suppliers you're going to work with to products that you're going to manufacture to consumers you're going to target to uh, time horizon for your investments, to how closely you want to work with the public sector. Mm -hmm. And these are very prickly decisions. And for some companies, they appreciate the candor when I say, look, sustainability isn't about feel-goodness. It's not about donating an extra 2% of net income. It's about making some really hard choices. Right, right. For other clients, what I'm finding is the right approach is to start by working through their sales force and say, well, what does a sales force have to do with sustainability? Mm. And the, one of the missing links in how do we get more companies to pick up on sustainability is the missing link of demonstrating that sustainability can lead to increased revenue. Right. And, and so I've actually been brought in uh, a couple of times over the last six weeks to give uh, Salesforce-wide workshops on how do you sell Company X's products, in one case it was a forestry company that makes commercial grade paper, mm -hmm. and in another case it was a beverage type company. Um, in both cases I was brought in to give a workshop on how do you sell a company's wares to the chief sustainability officer of your client. Mm -hmm. wow, and yeah. I've never seen a workshop like that before. Wow. So 
frankly and, and somewhat confessing to your audience, I built it from scratch mm -hmm. with the idea of let's start with what are the pressures that a chief sustainability officer faces, and then let's take those pressures, turn them you know, inside out to say, okay, as a sales force, what can you do to alleviate some of those pressures? And if we can find cogent answers that really map up well with your assets and what it is that you're selling, now we've got a new way to take what your company does to not only sell to the chief sustainability officer of your client, but in turn help drive revenue through sustainability-led solutions. And once I get there, it's like this light bulb pops up. I spent huh. all day yesterday at one of my advisory clients, um, and one of the clients I actually gave this workshop to, and even though I gave the workshop six weeks ago, the passion, the commitment, the energy is there in spades now, and now they're starting to say, you know, questions like, okay, how do we figure out which target clients to go after given our unique sustainability credentials? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm like, yes, you get this. You're, you're seeing sustainability can help you drive sales. Right, right. And this is great. And it's not about marketing. It's not about reputation. No. It's about having actual conversations with your clients about what are their most uh, difficult to remove and alleviate pain points. Mm -hmm. Sustainability can help lead that conversation. And, you know, here's how you do it. And so I'm finding a growing number of my clients become that much more receptive and frankly passionate mm -hmm. about sustainability as uh, a means to go back to your corporate clients to resell at times there that uh, you know maybe six, eight weeks, ten weeks ago you received no's from your corporate clients. Now is the time to go back and go back with sustainability as your lead, uh, your lead topic area. It's amazing and, and it's just it seems like you know once that basic understanding is there and you put it into a context that they understand, then just like you mentioned, the light bulb goes off and then they can just run with it. Well, that's right. You have to, you have to understand this particular client I'm, I'm thinking about, it's Salesforce uh, comprised primarily of 60-year-old uh, white males who've mm -hmm. been in sales for 40 or 40, you know, two <laughs> years who are used to essentially taking you know, their book of wares to a client and saying, okay, you tell me what you want to buy and I'll make sure you receive it. Right, and right. so they're order takers. And I said, no, 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 no. Right, Sustainability right. gives you the right, gives you the privilege to go into your client and be consultative. To start not with here's the new color swatches for 2013, but to start without the book on the table and instead start by asking, what are the three biggest vexing challenges that help prevent you from achieving the growth your department wants and the career progression you personally desire? Right, right. And it's like light bulbs go off and all of a sudden they get excited and they say, yes, you're not telling me sustainability is a soft, fuzzy koala, koala bear. You're telling me that there are ways to take sustainability uh, to help advance my own personal salesperson career. Right. Because it can lead to revenue generation. Right. And must, yes. God bless you. You get it. Right. And it's an invigorating. It's invigorating for for people who've been in the sales force for forty years to have something like this come along. I mean, it's, yes. it, it changes perspective. Wow. Well, this has been terrific, Eric. Thank you so much for 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 coming on today. It's been a rich discussion. I anticipated a rich discussion, and it was a very rich discussion. So, thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Chrissy, for the chance. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today. Definitely. Okay. Thanks. Nature of Business is also brought to you by the Energy Law Group at Downs Racklin Martin PLLC, a law full-service law firm with six offices in northern New England. DRM's energy team provides the complete menu of legal services to assist commercial renewable energy clients with project development, financing, siting, and regulatory approvals. For more information, log on to drm.com. We will be right back.